In the previous season, we talked to the Good Food Institute India, where we learned all about how the alternative protein sector is disrupting the way we currently grow and consume food. The rise of plant and cell-based meat has meant that increasingly consumers can eat nutritionally, ethically, without having to compromise on taste, price and convenience. The alt-protein sector is working to build a future that meets the nutritional requirements of our population without having an adverse impact on public and environmental health. In this episode, we dive in on people and funds that are making this future possible via investments. What role do investors play in propelling this sector? How are they mentoring, advising, incubating entrepreneurs who are building this better future of food? Most importantly, what tips do they have for founders who have to navigate running their fledgling businesses amidst a pandemic? Welcome to this episode on Amplify. Today we're speaking to Andrew Ive, who is the founder of Big Idea Ventures, and we'll be talking all about the rise of alternative protein industry, and he'll be bringing in his experience as an investor, as a food entrepreneur, and person who basically knows everything there is to know. And I think the best way to possibly summarize Andrew is that he's a bit like the fairy godmother of food. I'm so excited to have you here, Andrew. Thank you so much for making time for this. Of course. Uh, thanks for inviting me. I'm not sure how I cope with the, the kind of fairy godmother of food <laughs> title. People have called me an, an icon and a legend and all that, all those words do is make me feel terribly, terribly old. So <laughs> maybe Mary fairy godmother is actually a better way of, of thinking yeah, about it. I think, I think it's quite an ageless concept, isn't it? I mean, you're just there, you're blessing people with your, your skills <laughs> and your wisdom, but there's no reference to your age or whether you have a wand in tow or not. So I think that's a great start. <laughs> <laughs> great. Sounds great. <laughs> so Andrew, can you tell us a little bit about what it was that interested you and sort of inspired you to get into the alternative protein sector? Oh, absolutely. So I started working as the MD, so managing director responsible for a uh, food accelerator, maybe about three or four years ago, maybe a little longer than that now. And that role gave me a the opportunity of working with some amazing entrepreneurs, amazing startups who are doing some crazy, crazy kind of world-changing things in the food space. And, and they were doing things across consumer products and sustainability, hardware, software, marketplaces, you know, all sorts of different uh, categories across the food space. And I really fell in love is probably the best way of describing it. I fell in love with how important the food industry is to us all. It's, it's one of those industries, one of those businesses which touch all of us. Um, it, you know, it's, it's something that brings us together as a people. It's something which brings us together with our families. It's so important to our personal health. It's incredibly important to the health of the planet that we're you know, living in. It has an impact on animal welfare. I mean, there's just so it touches so many different things, food, mm. you know, generally. What I started to see though, as I was getting kind of 800 or so companies applying for investment on an annual basis, I started to see a pattern 
amongst those startups and those young companies, particularly around plant-based protein and plant-based foods and products and cell-based foods and products. So I, I started to see some really amazing you know, innovations, teams, companies coming through in both plant-based foods and cell-based foods. And I also started to understand that if we are to provide for ourselves as a species, as we're kind of approaching nine to 10 billion people between now and 2050, we potentially need to find more efficient ways of, of creating food and protein. You kind of, the animal protein system as it stands today is not as efficient as it needs to be to provide for us and the numbers of people we're going to have. I firmly believe that plant-based and cell-based technologies are the way we as a species you know, can meet our needs over the next 20, 30 years. And also those technologies give us the capability of being able to provide for ourselves as a species with a far lower impact on climate and our, on our environment because they're just a more efficient system than the kind of traditional animal protein system that we have today. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a matter of the fun of working with great entrepreneurs. Um, I really love my job and working with those great folks doing crazy, crazy things and big things that, you know, will impact our, our planet. And it's also an imperative that we all have to, you know, effectively flatten the curve of climate change so that we can survive and have a, an environment that works for us and doesn't work against us. Yeah. And when I was researching and sort of deep diving into all the work that you've done, I came across this snippet of a talk that you'd given at Change Food Fest, where something that you said actually really resonated with me. And I was hoping you could sort of go into that a bit more. So in this snippet, you essentially said that we're currently producing food to the lowest common denominator. So can you just sort of get into what you mean by that? I mean, I mean, how have the current food systems failed us? Yeah, so I don't think they necessarily, well, they, I think failed us is, is kind of one way of looking at it. But the food system that we've had, at least in the Western world, so let's say, for example, North America and Europe, the food system we've had from the 1950s is, has been about creating large volumes of high-calorie, inexpensive food so that we could you know, feed our people. You know, we came out of the Second World War with shortages. And the way we responded to those shortages, because we're, you know, human beings are, are very creative and problem solvers, we managed to figure out how to scale production of food how to create it inexpensively and consistently and safely. But what we also wanted to do as large food companies, uh, and those food companies grew over time as you know, consumers made their purchases, we were looking to create foods which people would love and would become addicted to. You know, that's one of the goals of the, um, the large food companies is to get as many ongoing happy customers as possible. What that meant, you know, from the 1950s onwards was high calorie, high sugar, and to some degree, low nutrient density foods. Foods that people would want to eat because they taste great 
but unfortunately weren't necessarily providing the full range of nutrients and vitamins or vitamins that people needed. So that's what I mean by food of the lowest common denominator. So very, you know, high volumes, low nutrient density, very Moorish because they meet our kind of individual needs around taste and sugars and fats and those sorts of things. I think what's starting to happen now is that people are becoming aware of the impact those foods are having in terms of personal health, obesity, diabetes, and other and other diseases, and are starting to be more selective and cognizant of the foods that they consume. I think some of the challenges we're seeing, again, still in still staying in the Western world, is that there are certain places where we effectively have nutrient food deserts where people, because of low income or because of the supply chain, um, only have access to foods at a price point that's achievable, which are those lowest common denominators, those kind of low nutrient density, high calorie of high calorific value, et cetera. Obviously, that system isn't global. So we still have people in parts of the world who aren't getting the right nutrient foods as well as not getting the right you know calorific foods also mm. so you know a shortage of supply of healthy good foods you know outside of those western kind of markets and so on whenever we talk about food and food innovation and so on we have a tendency to just be thinking about you know our own particular cultures but i think there's there's kind of challenges throughout the food system on a from a global basis yeah, no, definitely. And I think while the conversation has sort of like, I mean, this is just from my observation because I am not an expert in food necessarily, but this is just from my observation that while the conversation on food has always been sort of like, okay, we know that the global north, which would include the UK and the US are sort of leaving a high of carbon footprint and are sort of emitting more greenhouse gases. There's also a lot of issues in the global south when it comes to the way that we're producing food wherein it's not able to meet the nutritional requirements of our growing population. And I'll get to that in a minute. But before I do, you talked a bit about good food and, and sort of healthy food. And I mean, there's been such a surge in conversation surrounding this. People are talking so much more about clean eating, green eating, conscious food, local food, so on and so forth. And is there a particular metric by which we can define or identify what good food means? Wow, that's, that's a huge, huge question. So the funny thing is, I'm on the board at, at Tufts, um, the Food Nutrition Council for, yes. for Tufts University. Tufts is one of the kind of few universities that has a dedicated nutrition you know, classes in the university. It's a nutri- you know, it has a university focused on nutrition. And we get into uh, some of these discussions sometimes, and uh, there's this kind of belief that, for example, education will help people to make the right choices. And I think intrinsically, we all understand what the right choices are, and we make poor micro decisions on a day-to-day basis, which add up and stack up. So, for example, I know that ice cream is not good for me, but I can't help but have ice cream. I know that (laughs) chocolate isn't good for me, but I just finished off a 
a bar of Cadbury's uh, fruit and nut, you know, not, <laughs> not 30 too, minutes ago. Me too, I just had a Snickers. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think we all understand high sugar, you know, high sugar, high salt, low vitamins, low fiber, low plant content, etc. We all understand what bad and good food is. I don't know that we need a lot of education or somebody somewhere prescribing, you know, or trying to control that, that food. I think we just, the way I've always thought about it is we need to make food which tastes like it's bad for you because it's so delicious, mm. but, but actually is healthy and is, is sustainable from a planet perspective. So in other words, right now there's this kind of intersection of bad for you, tastes amazing, and has very little benefit for you, right? Mm. So people are eating these foods that, that tastes amazing because it hits all of those kind of needs that we have internally for fat and sugar and those sorts of things. But unfortunately, they're bad for you as a, as a human in terms of what you need uh, to survive. And they're also bad in terms of how you produce them and, and the impact on the planet. Now, what I like the idea of is, is finding entrepreneurs who build products which tastes amazing but actually have a lot of the nutrients and the vitamins that you need and the fiber you need uh, and so on, but, and a, and a much more sustainable from a, a kind of planet climate perspective. And, and that's what we're all about. You know, we're running around finding these great companies that uh, I'll give you an example. There's a company called Karana in Singapore and in Asia that's creating whole food jackfruit dumplings. Now, these dumplings are made from jackfruit and, and the usual dumpling kind of flour-based surrounding. But the way they process, you know, the way they make that, that jackfruit, it looks and tastes like pork. Mm. But it's actually made from a, a plant. So it's much better on the digestion. It, it doesn't include cholesterol. It's much more environmentally sustainable because it's, uh, you know, jackfruit is actually a, a plant that gets grown underneath palm and fills in the gaps in the in the kind of plantation it's a really kind of a sustainable ingredient but it tastes amazing it tastes like a pork dumpling but it's just much much healthier for you so to answer your question i think there there are foods which are actually better for you better for the planet but actually tastes like they're bad for you and i think that's the interesting intersection yeah, and I think that's the intersection at which Big Idea Ventures and, and the new protein fund that you're working on sort of works at because you mentioned Kirana, was it? Is this the one? That, yeah, Kirana. Yeah, Kirana. And then I think there's also another that you're sort of working with that does lab-grown foie gras, which is, I've actually never eaten foie gras, but I do know that sort of it is exploitative of the duck, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, so, so foie gras traditionally has been now banned in, in 70 uh, countries. New York, for example, banned it as, a, as an ingredient um, and as a food, I think about six to nine months ago now. Yeah, you basically force feed the duck mm. um, using a tube grain. So you just shove it, shove grain into its mouth until its liver explodes. Um, oh, my God. It's, it's, yeah, it's not very pleasant. If you see the kind of videos on on. YouTube that show that process. It's it's pretty pretty scary, horrific stuff. But these guys take a cell from an egg, a duck egg. So not even a fertilized egg, or not even an animal, but an e a cell of an egg, 
and then they multiply that cell and feed that cell plant-based vegetable oil until it, the cell fattens and they grow that and that cell multiplies and eventually they create this liver cell a foie gras it's just a, a, an incredible incredible uh, process and the team gourmet behind it are just doing some amazing things yeah and that sounds like a much more efficient a much more ethical way of doing that and i think it's quite interesting that you don't you know you're sort of removing the idea of sacrifice at least where meat eaters are concerned because i think you know you're not really, I don't think the idea is to actually get vegans to eat this because, well, most plant-based eaters or vegan people would normally just go for food that tastes like plants. But essentially the concept behind this is, of course, to convert the meat eaters to sort of realize that this is actually a really dirty process and it's it's unnecessary. So the interesting thing is that we as people are brought up from when we're babies all the way up to adulthood to love and appreciate culturally relevant foods, right? And those foods are reassuring to us. They're part of our kind of psyche. And no one has the right necessarily to kind of wag their finger at somebody and say, don't eat this, and but you can eat that. And if, if anyone tries to take that sort of wagging finger accusatory approach to uh, you know the rest of their fellow human beings those fellow human beings will probably tell them to take a hike i think that there's enough smart creative entrepreneurs out there who are creating amazing new foods that look and taste like the traditional foods that we've all grown up to love and and you know is are parts of our, our psyche, parts of our culture. And there are entrepreneurs out there building these great, great foods, but using plant-based ingredients and, you know, cell-based ingredients. And that way people can have what they want. They can have what they're used to, but it will have a far lower impact on climate, on the environment. You know, if it's plant-based, the animal welfare situation has gone away. We, we don't have to treat animals so terribly in the food system anymore. You know, I think entrepreneurs, engineers, scientists, etc., are squaring the circle for us as far as food is concerned. Yeah. And Big Idea Ventures is in New York. So it's obviously got on foot there. And it's also in Singapore. So when you sort of decided that you're going to expand to Singapore and sort of the South Asian market, did you have any apprehensions? Were you, did you have any preconceived notions whether alternative protein would take off or not? Because meat eating is so aspirational, at least in India. You know, like, was there any of that that you had to deal with when you set up in Singapore? Multiple aspects to that, to that question. I was nervous about starting in Singapore because you know, we were setting up an office, we were building a team, we were working with the Singaporean government to, to set up a program and a, a fund focused on Singapore and Asia. And yes, I was kind of nervous that I would open, open our doors in, in Singapore and you know, we would have zero companies um, mm. in the plant-based or cell-based innovation space. And you know, we'd, be, we'd hang our 
shingle or our, our sign outside of our door and say we're open for business and there would, would be no companies. Now, what actually happened was, and this is testament to the Big Idea Ventures you know, kind of leader out in Asia, which is Christian Cadeo. It's testament to the team we have out there um, and also the relationship we have with the Singaporean government. But when we opened our doors, we ended up getting 60, 70 companies wanting investment within days. And we were able to field and invest in an amazing cohort of, of you know, six or seven companies. And out of that 60, 70 companies that applied, we opened our doors for a second time in March, just as kind of COVID was happening, really kind of nervous that COVID was going to impact this. We ended up getting a lot of great companies coming through wanting investment from Big Idea Ventures then as well. And we've chosen another kind of five or six companies. At this point, we've got 25 companies, plant-based, cell-based companies that are really innovating, both from um, Singapore, but also we've we found great companies in Australia, in Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, France, you know, all over. We're, we're finding some great, great companies. Was I really concerned about the kind of movement to whether the market was moving towards plant-based in, in Asia? Yes. I was starting to see consumers moving towards plant-based in the kind of metropolitan cities. So mm. Singapore, Shanghai, Beijing, Mumbai, amongst kind of uh, the, the wealthier population and kind of other key key metropolitan cities. But one of the things I've seen now because of COVID is a, an acceleration of that demand for healthier kind of plant-based rather than animal protein-based foods. I think, you know, we've, we've seen an acceleration of that, that consumer demand coming through, even in Asia. And we, we're also hearing from, for example, the Chinese government that plant-based is going to be one area that they are, as a country, going to be pushing very, very aggressively because they see it being a good solution for, you know, providing great food for their, their population and also food that it has a, a lower impact on, on the environment. So I'm very positive about what's happening in Asia, and I'm really glad we were one of the first, if not the first, to open our doors in in Asia. In fact, one of our companies, Shock Meat, which is doing cell-based shrimp, crab, and lobster, is probably about two years away from commercial viability with their shrimp products. And they were the first uh, cell-based company in Singapore. So, you know, that was our first investment. Uh, I think Singapore is kind of leading the way at the moment, but I do see China stepping up very quickly to get more innovative in plant-based and cell-based. India is also an interesting market. We're working with the Good Food Institute in India. Varun over there is just is just a rock star. He's kind of doing some really creative things. Mm. And we want to support him and the GFI team and maybe potentially have an accelerator in India at the appropriate time. Yeah. And so would you say then that a company sort of the equivalent of Beyond Meat or Impossible Foods in the US um, is not that far off in Asia? I actually don't think it's that far off in Asia. In fact, we, we invested in a company recently called Zen Meats, Z-H-E-N Meats, which is creating a plant-based pork product in China. 
they've been called on num numerous occasions the impossible of China. I think one thing we do have to recognize that what, you know, in the US, the, the kind of interesting volume product is the burger. You know, mm. millions and millions of burgers are being sold in the US every day and creating a plant-based burger gives us the ability to have a real impact. However, in other countries, in other regions, take, for example, China as a, as a for instance, or Asia as a for instance, the dumpling or the Xiaoling Bao is, is the equivalent of the burger. So yeah. in that instance, we, we should be, you know, and, the, and in India, for example, the biryani would be an equivalent to, for example, the American burger in America. So what you need to do is to work on creating great tasting, well-priced, culturally relevant foods for each region and not try and push the American style burger into every place around the world. Mm. Because, you know, you can't expect the culture to, to change and adapt, adapt or, or adopt necessarily the Western style of eating and the Western taste profile, because it's not what people have grown up to love. So if you want to have an impact on the plant-based side, you need to innovate around the natural foods, the volume foods in in each market, respectively. Relevant innovation is is probably what's required. Yeah, and you talk a bit about how plant based food is a sort of gaining popularity and is not that far off from commercial viability. But mm. eating meat is is so closely linked to your sort of uh, disposable income, right? So. Do you think, and, and perhaps you could just speak with respect to India or maybe just um, Asia in general, but do you think that we need to ascribe that aspiration to plant-based meat or alternative protein to sort of make it more viable than the people who would otherwise just go towards meat eating? Yeah, th this, is a tough, this is a tough one. Um, and I've had a lot of conversations with folks who are really interested in the food innovation space and especially around plant-based in, in India. India is, is aspirationally oriented towards meat right now. Although it's been a vegetarian, uh, you know, a predominantly vegetarian society over many, many decades, more and more people are moving towards meat. And it's, as you say, as the middle class increases, as, as wealth accumulates, people aspire to more meat consumption. So how do we address that? Well, I think there's a couple of dimensions to it, if it's even possible to kind of unpack it. But one is, it's not going to work, you know, using that wagging finger, don't do this because mm. it's bad for you, or don't do this because it's bad for the planet. I don't think that's going to work because, you know, how, how dare the other kind of cultures who have been doing exactly that from a meat consumption perspective over many you know hundreds of years start telling other people how they they ought to be you know what they should aspire to i think it comes down to those kind of daily micro decisions i mentioned before in the sense of if you create foods which taste amazing and they just happen to be better for the planet or happen to be healthier or happen to be plant based as long as those foods are at the right price point and as long as those foods have great, great taste, if you
if you can get them into the mouths of as many people as possible and then make it easy from a distribution perspective for people to make those purchase decisions on a day-to-day basis, taste, I believe taste will win. So, you know, we have the ability to create great tasting plant-based meats, great tasting plant-based dairies and um, lassies and, and all the other things. So providing we we can do that, I think we can start, you know, making a dent in the kind of animal, you know, the current animal food system. Yeah, and and you recently, um, Big Idea Ventures recently invested in Evo Foods, which is a vegan egg substitute. And India is is huge on egg. I mean, Indians, Indians, whether they classify as vegetarians or as meat eaters, almost inevitably do end up eating egg. So egg is one of those foods which is sort of like falls in the category of both vegetarian and meat-eating cuisine. So can you, can you talk a little bit about what Evo Foods is doing? Yeah, so Evo is a local Mumbai-based team of people. It's not an external team wanting to launch in India. This is you know local people who saw an opportunity in the egg space to create a plant-based version of egg. There's a company in the US called Just, which has created this kind of liquid egg product. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and, it's, and it's made from plant-based ingredients. Evo Foods have created a plant-based egg product, and it will be available in the India market as both a liquid that you can you know, pour and, and scramble just like you would a, a kind of a scrambled egg. You can use that liquid to create egg-based products, i.e., you know, uh, like a little mini omelet, for example, that people can use. It's plant-based. It's ethical. It has much better nutrient density than egg even does. It has, I think, zero cholesterol, whereas egg obviously doesn't. And you know, we believe we, you know, we can work with. Evo to bring that to the Indian marketplace at a price that's competitive with, you know, eggs. So we're really excited about it. We think it's going to be um, a really, you know, ground changing opportunity for for India. Yeah, I'm really excited. I think it's going to be so <laughs> interesting to try something that is made from. I think it's made from moon beans, if if I'm not mistaken. And and I think it's it's just great that we have homegrown brands sort of contributing to this alternative protein industry which is sort of already a bit mainstream in the west so I'm, I'm really excited I'm really looking forward to this I'm curious to find out whether you can actually use this for baking as well like if you can use they, the- yeah they, they yeah Evo Evo Foods believe and have tried uh, tried it in the baking situation so yeah we we believe it's literally a a great substitute for for egg and you know it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Evo Foods is going to change, change the, you know, change the Indian landscape from a food perspective, and then we hope they'll take that product and take it global. That's that's you know one of the one of the hopes for uh, that we have. Yeah, that would be great. Oh, and I wanted to talk a bit about this as well. So, Big Idea Ventures, one of the limited partners on Big Idea Ventures is Tyson Foods, which is one of I think the biggest or the second largest uh, producer of uh, beef and pork and other meat products in the US. And do you think that this sort of surge in alternative protein industry, does that 
threaten the livelihoods of people who are working as butchers or in the meatpacking industry in general, like whether it's in the US or anywhere else, should they be concerned about what their livelihood will look like in the future? So let me kind of put it like this. We as as humans require uh, a certain, you know, we require protein, fat, carbohydrates to survive. How we get those proteins, carbohydrates, and fats can change over time. Uh, those people, for example, who are in the animal protein industry, farmers, for example, who are who are growing cattle or pigs or chickens uh, to ultimately be sold to a company like Tyson or any company that's in the animal protein space, those farmers are potentially always going to have a job in terms of providing protein. The question is, is it animal protein or is it plant-based protein or is it you know, some other kind of source of protein? If they're farmers, they can potentially change the crop that they that they create. For example, if consumers over the next 10, 15, 20 years say, we don't want as much animal protein in our particular culture, they still need protein. So, you know, those farmers who are currently growing pigs could just as easily, well, just as easily, so easy for me to say when I'm not part of that cycle, right? But those farmers who create pigs for to create protein for humans could change to create plant-based protein through crops and and kind of relevant uh, production means. So the protein need doesn't go away. How we get that protein and how it's provided to us can change. And farmers can either A, change with those consumer demands, or, you know, their businesses will, will change and potentially go away. You know, the protein need is only going to grow over time. My suggestion for those who are in, for example, the animal protein side of the equation is now may be the time to diversify into not only providing animal protein, but also plant-based protein. You know, be in the protein business. Don't be necessarily just in the animal protein business so that when consumers change their habits, you are still the provider of protein to those, uh, to those consumers and you still have a business. Yeah. I'd like you to sort of put on your investor hat from your fairy godmother of food hat <laughs> for the next uh, <laughs> okay. few questions that I have, which is just what advice would you give to aspiring food entrepreneurs who are sort of either looking to get into this space or are relatively new into this space? Great question. So a couple of things that sort of just immediately jump out at me. One is, you know, there are people like me out there who really want to help entrepreneurs to start and grow their businesses and to be successful. You know, we are always on the lookout for founders who have great products, uh, especially in plant-based and cell-based, you know, who have great products that will potentially change the world for the better. You know, Big Idea Ventures is focused on finding entrepreneurs who will solve some of the challenges we have through the execution of Big ideas. So first and foremost, you know, if you want to start a business, if you have a new product idea, if you're bringing a new product to market, there are people like me out there who want to help you. We want to potentially invest in you. 
We want to give you access to our network and our ecosystem. We want to introduce you to people who can help fill some of the gaps that you have in your business and create a business that has the potential to have a global impact. So there's there are networks, there are people like me out there who can help you know you as a founder. That's that's kind of probably the first thing. The second thing is if there's a gap that you want as a consumer, if there's something you want and need from a product or from a technology that doesn't currently exist, you know, you have two choices. You can complain about it or you can get out there and figure out how to solve the problem and how to do it. I would recommend anyone that is, you know, has an idea for something, get started, get out there, create something, bring it to market, have people tell you what's wrong with it, how it needs to be improved, go back to the drawing board, change that product up, make it better, improve it, come back to con- you know consumers, customers, get their feedback, keep iter- you know keep iterating and optimizing. And eventually you'll get to the point where, you know, you have a product or a technology which, you know, which people want, not just potentially in your region, but potentially your country and maybe even beyond the country that you're in today. Yeah. And, and are there any things in particular that startup founders should focus on before they sort of approach funders and investors such as yourself? So one of the things we look for beyond, you know, a big idea that has the potential for global impact is we're looking for how the entrepreneur has has tried to prove that people want the thing that they're they're bringing to market. So, you know, what people usually do with a with a kind of consumer product for example is they'll create a a first iteration of it and then they'll introduce it to their friends and family. And friends and family are often quite positive people and encouraging, although, you know, some aren't, some are really, really <laughs> rude and obnoxious, but that's just a personal thing. But, you know, some family members will say, hey, you know, this is great. What you really need to do if you want a fair representation is to produce that product at, for example, a commercial kitchen, which has the right safety standards and the right safety, you know, levels create a small batch of your product take that product out to the to the to food to a food market or to some form of you know weekend food market or something along those lines and and try and get people to try it to buy it to tell you what they think of it and maybe the first couple of times you try and do something like that people will say oh i don't like it or or it needs more it needs more this it needs less that but ultimately you'll start getting consumer feedback on what you're bringing to market and we invested or i invested in a company probably about 2 to 3 years ago now called abby's better and abby at the time was a 17 year old lady who was disappointed with kind of peanut butter type products um, she thought they were t- they had too much sugar they too ha- had too much additives and so on so she went into her own kitchen she spent a few weekends creating a whole new range of pecan butters and almond butters and so on. Generally, two or three ingredients like Himalayan pink salt and a little bit of coconut oil and then almonds or you know whatever the particular nut was that she was using. And then she went to farmer's markets and 
with I think with something like uh, 50 jars uh, that she had made in her in her own kitchen and she sold out within an hour and then the next weekend she went back having spent the whole week making 500 jars of of her nut butter and within I think uh, the morning she sold out all 500 jars you know we invested in Abby we were the first ones to do so and Abby now has a multi-million dollar business selling really good quality you know locally grown locally sourced great tasting nut butters and you know she's now i think she's 19 now maybe she's 20 now and she's got a a phenomenal business and it all just came about because as a teenager she was sort of disappointed with the products that were currently in the market and decided instead of just complaining about it she would get into her kitchen and try and solve the problem Wow, well done, Abby, making the world a butter place. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not going to let that one go. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, okay, I'm good. I just want the listeners to know that it is like close to midnight at my end, which is why I came up with that terrible pun. I do come up with better ones. See, I tried to resist myself. I didn't say butter just then either. But yeah, oh. <laughs> anyway, going back <laughs> to what I was saying, you know, currently we're navigating this global pandemic and it's all overwhelming. It can get quite stressful, especially if you are an entrepreneur. And do you have sort of any input to give as an investor? Like what is investor sentiment like during this time and what's it going to be like post pandemic? So investors are, you know, human beings just like everybody else. You know, we I've seen investors during this whole COVID crisis who are continuing to invest, who are continuing to move forward, you know, who are, you know, very focused on making sure the companies they've already invested in are happy, healthy, survive, and so on. So, you know, I've seen a whole range of investors who are being very supportive of their their portfolio, who are, you know, still looking for great companies and doing whatever they can to kind of to help. I've also seen investors who are nervous about the current situation, about the potential down to, uh, economic downturn that people are talking about and are, you know, pulling term sheets and not following through on promises they've made. And I don't criticize those folks, you know, or necessarily praise the people who are being very supportive because, you know, we're all human beings, we're all trying to survive and and kind of keep a positive mental mindset during COVID. It's it's a tremendously challenging and difficult situation for everybody. And you know, we're all just trying to we're all just trying to keep going. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, any advice for startups in terms of COVID and post-COVID? There's always going to be smart investors who want to help you, whether it's you know. COVID or post-COVID. And what you need to do as an entrepreneur is just find the investors who have the same goals that you do, have the right chemistry with you, and are going to you know, work by your side to make your company as successful as it can be. I do believe that the, you know, the investors and the money will be there if you set out on the journey to build a, a great business that is you know going to change the world there'll be people to help you along the way every everything i've 
ever managed to accomplish has been because somebody who's a few steps ahead of me has kind of taken me by the hand and helped me. Nothing I've ever done has been because of, of me. It's always been because somebody has taken you know sympathy on me or given me some kind of support and leg up throughout the process. You know, think of it as a ladder. Your goal if you're on the ladder is to reach down a couple of rungs below you and pull the next person up. And I hope normally that there's somebody a few rungs of the ladder ahead of me who will do the same thing for me. We're in, you know, I, I hate the t-shirt slogan here, but we are all in this together. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's such a good point because I feel like everybody who sort of starts off with an idea, with a business idea, sort of starts off with the idea that they want to be like the next Facebook of whatever industry they're in, you know, or they want to be the next sure, sure. Amazon or Google. And I think there's just so much pressure to sort of like immediately become this huge, you know, multi-billionaire, billion dollar conglomerate. And, and I think it's so important to remember that you've got to start somewhere. And, and even perhaps that that model of growth may not necessarily be the most sustainable or viable. Yeah, I, I think there's a few things to remember as you start your business, as you grow them. One is that, that mental health is incredibly important. You know, there's not a God of the entrepreneur that requires complete sacrifice for you to be successful as an entrepreneur in a business, starting a business. It's a long play it's a long game and you need to to have a family you need to have personal health and think about your personal health you need to have mental health you know you need a a full life uh, that is rewarding and not just dedicate everything to your business because eventually you will burn out by all means be dedicated and focused but you also need to make sure that you're looking after your physical and mental well and spiritual for that matter well-being as as you grow your business yeah well, that is such a lovely sentiment as um i think you should definitely go and become like a like a guru of some sort on instagram and fulfill your potential i'm a, I'm a fairy god i'm a fairy yeah, godmother exactly. i've got the dress think, to prove yeah, it i think literally you should just get on instagram change your instagram handle if you already have one or if you don't have one create one that says fairy godmother of food and then sort of give out these lovely wholesome snippets of advice my, my instagram is just filled with um Vegan foods and puppies. That's all oh, I ever God. see on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's quite wholesome content right there. So, I mean, I think you're, you're on the right path. You just have to continue. <laughs> Find an influencer who's sort of higher up on the ladder and get them to make these videos of you giving this advice. <laughs> Sanchi, I really, really appreciate your, your time today. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. You are so positive and, and I think... You were so grounded and, and and not that I know a lot of investors, but I feel that you're definitely such a warm and kind and human and approachable one. So thank you for being like that. Thank you for not being all like, Ooh, I'm an investor. Please me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, the one thing I've, so I've been an entrepreneur for far more years than I have being lucky enough to, you know, back other entrepreneurs. The one thing that used to, used to really annoy me as an entrepreneur was people used to think they were smarter than me because they were, they had a checkbook Ooh. and people with checkbooks 
are unfortunately one step removed at least from the company. So the entrepreneur is always the smartest person in the room. And you need to remember that when you when you meet an entrepreneur, they live and breathe their their category, their product, their space, and no amount of, of check writing will make you any smarter as an, as an investor. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you so much for all your nuggets of wisdom. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you. You too, Sanchi. Thank you so much. Oh, if anyone wants to get hold of me, by the way, I'm on LinkedIn, Andrew Ive, or at Big Idea Ventures. Love people to reach out and connect. Yeah, and I will make sure that Big Idea Ventures and the information about what you do and uh, the funding that you provide for entrepreneurs is actually provided in the blurb for the episode so people can easily navigate that and sort of have a look at it and see if they want to approach you. Great. And if, if we want to do it again in a year or so, maybe we can have a butter chat. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had that one coming. I should have seen that one coming. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. All right. See you later. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. And that marks the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find all the relevant links and handles to know more about our guest this week in the episode description. If you have any feedback, suggestions, requests, or simply just want to get in touch with us, then please do head over to our podcast website. We are available to flag and say hi to via Facebook, Instagram, or email. Thank you and see you next week.